Can you please introduce yourself? Good day. I'm Martin Arnold. I'm a Ukrainian Greek Catholic priest, and I'm very concerned about what I would call the Ukraine's Ukraine's Kremlin problem. <laughs> uh, I could talk to you inexpertly, but at length, about things from. Um, 1721 to 1990, but I guess I and the listener are more concerned about about current current issues in Ukraine. Hey, eh? hmm. before we get into those current issues, could you tell our listeners a little bit about your association with the Ukraine? Well, hmm, I uh, I I'll tell the story at a bit, bit of length. Yes, uh, um, I met up at Cooper State School in grade six with a Ukrainian lad, uh, not knowing uh, his, not knowing what Ukraine was, the Ukrainian language, Ukrainian religion. Uh, we are still friends, Marko Pavlishin and I, after all these years. And eventually, uh, at a time when the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church was short of priests, they would say, uh, I became uh, uh, a Ukrainian Greek Catholic priest. And for a long time, until 2008, in fact, I would explain to everybody almost straight away that although I'm a Ukrainian Greek Catholic priest, I'm a Queenslander and with German ancestors and English and, and Scottish. But in 2008, uh, I was talking to a member of my family, in fact, who was saying, oh, well, I suppose the the Crimeans wanted to become part of the Russian Federation. And I was offended, um, not only on on behalf of, of, of Ukrainians, but myself. And so since that time, I have thought of myself as a Ukrainian, even though I've never been there. <laughs> I'm going to ask a series of questions now, which come from an essay that I read yesterday by Tariq Ali. And you would recall that Tariq Ali was one of the main leaders in the Stop the War movement, both in the 1960s against um, the Vietnam War, and he actually went to Vietnam, and then more recently in the, the war against Iraq, when uh, both Britain and the United States along with the smaller countries, invaded Iraq. So it gives you a chance to respond to what is coming from the left about this current crisis. Is Putin the unilateral source of the aggression in the Ukraine? I would say that the, the Putin government has wanted to destabilise the Ukrainian government and increase its sphere of influence throughout what it describes as the former Soviet Union. There are uh, a few people, Ukrainians, uh, who are sympathetic, I guess, to this move. I suppose Yanukovych would be the, the name that springs to mind. Yes, I guess the, the great bulk of the... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, what, what was the term you used? Aggression? It said, uh, is Putin the unilateral source of the aggression in the in the Ukraine, and, and when you said Yanukovych, you're talking about a former president of the Ukraine. 
uh, Yanukovych was president of Ukraine until 2008, I think, when he, he left Kiev uh, in response to uh, large public protests about uh, his government's re refusal to implement uh, an act of concord with the uh, European Union not to become part of the European Union, but just to become a cooperating member, which uh, people increasingly saw this as an attempt to, to keep uh, Ukraine within the, 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 the Russian sphere of influence, which before Putin came to power was, was not a thing that was particularly objected to. Uh, Ukraine wished to be independent, but it, but it had traditional ties with, with, with Russia, but uh, Putin's government has been uh, revanchist. Uh. The European Union is heavily dependent on Russia for energy. So 46% of its coal and uranium comes from Russia, 41% gas, and 27% is oil that comes from Russia. So why would the EU want to antagonise Russia? Well, it doesn't. <laughs> like Ukraine, the uh, European Union hopes for peace, <laughs> hopes to avoid uh, a Russian Federation invasion. And indeed, this has been a cause for uh, perhaps increased the, the hesitance of Berlin and, uh, uh, and Paris governments from uh, uh, being as enthusiastic as they might be about Ukrainian independence. But it seems to me that it would be a good thing for the for the Greens in Europe to make a political decision and to say uh, about energy sources and to say uh, oil and gas from the Russian Federation. We need to replace that with um, with green green energy as soon as possible. Mm. Um, well, on that, of course, um, war is a great waster of fossil fuels. So that's one reason why a war should be the last thing on the agenda, because it'll be, I mean, a terrible waste of fossil fuels. Um, um, now, when you say that the EU doesn't wish to antagonise Russia, um, in the last 30 years, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, which comprises of European states, they have advanced 800 miles towards the Russian border in the last 30 years since the downfall of the Soviet Union. So isn't that an, an aggression? Let me try to answer indirectly first. I, I think that Mr Putin's raising of this demand that Ukraine should never become a member of NATO at this time is, is a bit of a furphy. Uh, the uh, Ukrainian or Georgian membership of NATO in the near future is is not on the line. NATO is very hesitant about accepting Ukraine or Georgia as a member of NATO because of the very fact that they are involved in this dispute. Um, NATO has not expanded in the last, what, 15 years and is not likely to do so in the near future. Uh, so for Putin to demand that NATO should 
renounce its, its constitution, which allows other people to join this uh, mutual defence pact, um, is asking... F- In 2015, there were a, a number of parties to the Minx Agreement, and that was in response to the fact that in 2014 there was a real crisis in the Ukraine. And the parties are Germany, France, Russia and the Ukraine. What is the US and the UK doing by constantly talking up the the conflict? The parties to the dispute under the Minsk Agreement, they should be the ones who sort out the problem. Well, hmm. It comes also from the Ukrainian government. <laughs> uh, the Ukrainian government and the people uh, were, were concerned at a, a, um, uh, a military exercise being held in early 2021, which was then scaled back, and then a further amassing of troops on the, in Belarus and in the Russian Federation lands the Minsk agreements were an attempt to seek peace in what most Ukrainians and their government would say would be a, a, a de facto uh, Russian occupation of parts of Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts in the east. Uh, they're part of the highly industrialised part of Ukraine. Uh, and uh, in 2014, there was talk amongst people of Luhansk and Donetsk about uh, the, you know, perhaps we would do better as an autonomous region of of Ukraine rather than uh, rather than as a uh, full member or an ordinary member of the Ukrainian Federation, but. Uh, uh, my understanding is amongst the the people of Luhansk and Donetsk who are not in the occupied zones portions are amongst the most um, uh, patriotic <laughs> uh, in the country though they see the the, the, the incursion as um, uh, a um, on their land <laughs> uh, that, that this is a uh, this is not a, um, an attempt to free the people of Donetsk and Luhansk from, from oppression, but an attempt to in- incorporate them effectively in the Russian Federation. Why would Putin mobilise a vast force on the border of Russia and the Ukraine out of the blue? It was connected with his demand that Ukraine should never join NATO. To some extent, I guess, this, this was a military exercise, but it's a, a military exercise in such a way that it could involve all sorts of uh, in, invasion of the other country, annexed country, rather than a, a military exercise around Moscow, say, for example, which w- would not immediately involve uh, invasion of another country. Is the expansion of NATO non-negotiable? Ukrainians would still dearly love to be a neutral state. (laughs) However, as uh, Putin's aggression continues, they and their government have lost faith in 
Putin's intention, assurances that he does not intend to invade Ukraine or to annex Ukraine uh, or to annex parts of Ukraine any more than he has already done. I should say that the Black Sea is also a strategic, great strategic interest to the Ukrainian government and that part of the, the difficulty uh, of uh, the uh, RF's occupation of Crimea is that it now has forces on both sides of the main waterway of Ukraine. So it has been um, imperative to, from the Ukrainian government's point of view for freedom of shipping through, these, uh, through this strait, which previously, uh, which, which previously the, the, the uh, rush, this um, river mouth, I should say. When you say occupation of Crimea, the, a section of the Crimea was gifted by the Ukrainian government to the, the Russian Federation under a lease arrangement. Both strategic interests, that of the Russia and of the Ukraine, were protected there. No, no, I, I wouldn't put it that way. Um, in the 1990s, the Ukrainian government hoped for a peace dividend, huh? and it renounced the use of nuclear weapons in return from an agreement uh, from uh, the Russian Federation and other states that they would respect Ukrainian integrity uh, and sovereignty. There was also an old, uh, quite big Soviet naval base in Crimea. So uh, Ukraine... Uh, because there were so many Ukrainians in the... Oh, sorry, this is a bit of a diversion, but I can't help but say it because I think it gives something of the picture. Um, there were so many um, Ukrainians serving in the uh, uh, Soviet armed forces. It said that, you know, every, every lieutenant and major is, is... Every second lieutenant and major has a surname ending in Enko. <laughs> um, the uh, that they were um, sorry uh, yeah the the, um, the Ukrainian army was the new Ukrainian army was formed of anybody of the old Soviet army who wished to to join uh, um, and so I guess sorry that's beside the point let me get back to the point. Um, Ukraine found itself in possession of this naval base, which it didn't wish to spend money on on maintaining. And for that reason, uh, it leased it to the Russian Federation, which did. Uh, I, it, I, I'm sure we re deeply regret that decision now. But of course, this was in the time of um, um, before... Uh, b before um, Putin came to power, good relations with the, the Russian Federation. Um, yeah, I guess that answers the question to some extent. Um, the, the Ukrainian uh, economy was very strongly reliant upon the Russians because, for example, nearly 50% of all of its electricity needs came from um, the old uh, Soviet nuclear power plants and then in 
uh, I think in 2008, um, the Ukrainian government signed an agreement with Westinghouse uh, for their plants to be supplied by uranium and for them to be upgraded. Um, and that then alleviated their dependence upon uh, Russia for electricity. Um, and so that you can see that there was an attempt to break free of any kind of dependence on um, the Russian Federation. But the Ukraine is dependent on the Russian Federations, as is Europe, because at the moment most of the energy supplies that feed Europe, those statistics I gave at the beginning, comes through the Ukraine. And, of course, the Russians have been trying to overcome that by sending gas down through the Baltic Sea. Um, but that, ha that hasn't been completed yet. Um, there's, there's, so still, the Ukrainian um, the state is very dependent upon both Russia and the European countries for royalty payments. So it can't just isolate itself without looking at these economic realities, is what I'm saying. Um, so a lot of the, the moves that are being made, um, some of them may be clumsy, but they're a response to the hard reality of economic times. On the most part, the people are very poor, even though they're in quite an advanced country. They have, as you mentioned, a lot of heavy industry from the old Soviet days. It was a lot established there. So, you know, there, there there's, there's like peaceful things that are being done which could be upset if the Ukraine makes a wrong move, so to speak. And that's why I asked the question about NATO expansion is that you know, the sovereignty of the Ukraine is not just dependent upon the Kremlin and what it does, it's also dependent upon what NATO and the United States does. Um, so, you know, it's a tricky situation for the Ukrainian government to be in. Yes, um, one commentator thought that the best response uh, Kiev and uh, NATO could have given to uh, his demand that Ukraine never join NATO would be to decline to answer. <laughs> this is not on the cards for the moment. And leaping ahead, I guess, in a bit, I, I think the economic situation, I'm not an economist, but... I imagine that the best thing that uh, NATO could do for for Ukraine is to say to say not in response to Mr. Putin's uh, demands, but uh, generally that there are no plans at the moment for any countries to join NATO further. And for the European, the best thing the European Union could do would be to say, well, we will accelerate attempts to integrate Ukraine into the European Union. Uh, I think this would have a, a greater deterrent effect on, on the Soviet... I, guess I, I don't know quite why I think this would... <laughs> I somehow suspect this would have a, a greater deterrent effect on, um, on Mr Putin's invading Ukraine than uh, uh, Ukraine 
being put on the list to join NATO, huh? <laughs> Pussy Riot with their song Virgin Mary, Mother of God, Banish Putin, Banish Putin. It was a song that caused an uproar when they sang it in St. Saviour's Cathedral in Moscow. You notice the continuing refrain Most holy God bearer, banish Putin, banish Putin, most holy. that comes in the traditional chant and it's interspersed with other texts. The Moscow Patriarchate and the Putin government alleged that this was blasphemy to Almighty God. I think it was slander to the Moscow Patriarchate and to the Putin government, but slander which was true. <laughs> it was quite a clever juxtaposition of the old chant with the modern punk to use those two idioms. So they're clever musicians as well. Part blasphemy, part political, that is the punk group Pussy Riot in Christ the Saviour Cathedral in Moscow. Their song, which is a punk prayer, has the lyrics, Golden Epilepse, parishioners crawl bowing towards the priest during the Eucharist. Freedom's ghost has gone to heaven. A gay pride parade has been sent to Siberia in shackles. Their chief saint is the head of the KGB. He leads a convoy of protesters to jail so as not to insult the holiest one. Let's go back to Martin Arnold, the Ukrainian priest from Wollongaba, about the crisis in Ukraine. The State of Israel um, is a sort of a natural ally of the Ukraine, but there is a, a real contradiction in that because before the Second World War, during the Second World War and afterwards, there has been a strong anti-Semitic sentiment in the Ukraine. And so if Israel comes out now and 
supports the US and NATO and says, look, we're going to oppose um, Putin, it gets caught in this bind. It's, it's supporting a, a country which is one of, has one of the worst records of anti-Semitism in, in, in the world. What are your comments about that? How do you measure um, one of the worst records of anti-Semitism in the world? Um, <clears throat> the um, Ukraine certainly had a larger proportion of Jewish residents than Russia. I don't know if Ukrainian anti-Semitism was worse or, or, or more than anti-Semitism amongst Russians or Poles or Germans, or at least the, those Germans who uh, sympathise with, with Hitler. Uh, well, I say it, it expressed itself in World War Two by the country, the Ukraine, being divided in that a section of the country supported Hitler um, against the, um, the Ukraines that didn't want to have any part of fascism. You're perhaps thinking of Stefan Bandera's government as you, you're speaking about this? Well, I don't know. Not, I'm not talking about the government. I'm talking about the people. Um, of course, you would expect a Russian people of Russian culture and language to be anti-fascist. And the reason why they're anti-fascist is because of their experience during the Second World War, where they lost over 22 million people. So you would expect that. Um, but um, um, Ukraine, I think, suffered worse than Russia in terms of deaths in the Second World War. The Jewish population was almost eradicated. Um, uh, the fighting happened more on Ukrainian territory than on Russian territory. Um, that's one observation. There's a side an anomaly in what you're saying there in that the Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union then and so the, um, the, the Nazi forces were fighting um, on Ukrainian territory. They were fighting... The, the communists led by Stalin. So, um, yeah, but you, we've this is part of part of uh, I guess a, a, a kind of trick that goes back before even Putin. You know, to to assimilate uh, Russia with the Soviet Union. Uh, so, the Soviet Union is, according to its constitution, um, you know, th this federation of republics. Uh, it suited Russian dominance of the Soviet Union to allow people in the West to say, instead of the Soviet Union, to say Russia, our great ally Russia in, in the fight against fascism. Yeah, but we shouldn't forget that in the Soviet bloc, okay, Russia was the largest, but the Ukraine was the second largest. Well, well, yes, and that's why I'm, I'm saying that it, it, it suffered hugely, worse than Russia uh, in the Second World War. Uh, I am certainly, yes, I, I have read accounts of outrageous behaviour by Ukrainians 
I have read accounts of some Ukrainians also thinking that uh, the Nazis might be better than the Stalinists, uh, and soon changing their mind by and large <laughs> after they encountered the Nazis, because uh, in the Slavic uh, countries, it rapidly became uh, obvious that the Nazis regarded the Slavic peoples as second-class citizens. They weren't non-people like Jews and gypsies, but they were uh, subject people. And what? So no Pole, no Ukrainian, no none of the the uh, of the Slavic peoples was was enamoured of, of of this kind of arrangement. Uh, uh. There has been a historical divide in the Ukraine between the West and Central areas, which tend to be more nationalistic, and the East and Southeast, the Donbass uh, regions, which are Russian-speaking and more sympathetic to Russian. You know, when you talk about the Ukrainian people, um, you often refer to it as sort of just one block. But in every population, there's a lot of diversity, and it's very marked regionally and if you look at the elections from 2000 onwards you'll see that if the government in Kiev is sympathetic to Russian Federation you get the people in the Donbass region tend to vote for it and the people in the in the central uh, and the western area they vote against it and so you get that difference of opinion within the Ukraine itself. What I'm maybe suggesting the Ukraine crisis is not a, a NATO-US-Russian crisis at all. It's a Ukraine crisis where there's a civil war going on within the country. Ukraine, since, uh, well, since it achieved independence, uh, really for the first time since 1750 in, uh, in 1990, has strenuously adopted a policy that those who live in Ukraine are Ukrainians in one sense. Of course, there are Ukrainians who speak Ukrainian fluently. There are Ukrainians who speak Ukrainian occasionally. There are Ukrainians who don't speak Ukrainian at all. In this respect, perhaps, we could see a, 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 an analogy with, uh, with Ireland. You know, there, there are lots of... Irish people, I think, who are pretty weak on this command of Irish. Uh, no more or less Irish for that. Uh, in terms of ethnicity, you know, there are, there are Tartars. There are people who say, I'm, I'm just Ukrainian. Uh, there are people who say, I'm mostly Russian. I have a Ukrainian grandmother. Uh, or people who say, I'm Jewish. People who say... People identify in various ways within Ukraine as different, having different ethnicities. Uh, there have been. Um, no, I don't think that uh, uh, people in eastern Ukraine. Uh, well. I, 
I would I would bet, bet bet my bottom dollar that people in Western Ukraine do not wish to become part of Putin's Russian Federation. Uh, if faced with a choice of that or identification with the European Union, they would choose the latter. But uh, yeah, Eastern or Western. Uh, Ukrainians would like to have good relations with all their neighbours. It just seems difficult at the moment with the Russian Federation. Yeah. Bringing it home locally now, you're a, a priest, a Ukrainian priest, mm-hmm. and your parish is in the area of Wollongabba. And I remember Wollongabba before the South East Freeway was mm-hmm. erected, and it had a strong Russian and Ukrainian uh, presence in that. And a lot of the culture of that area was wrapped up in that. To this day, you have the Russian Hall, and there have been a number of uh, Russian, Ukrainian, and Serbian churches in in that whole area. And even, so the freeway, even though it divided the community, it was, uh, it still was not totally successful in doing that, because in your own parish, a war in the Ukraine would have a devastating effect on the people, your parishioners. What are the sentiments that you're getting from them about the current crisis? On the ground, what are the people saying? (sighs) They're concerned about their relatives uh, in Ukraine. They're concerned for the the future, uh, concerned to try to have a a resolution. There is a, a, a kind of weariness. I said to said somewhere recently, um, people are, are horrified at this further annexation of or, or occupation of these regions of official occupation of these parts of Donbass and, and Donetsk. And then I I, I amended it to uh, horrified isn't quite the right word. Even People in Ukraine and even people like me, uh, in in you know living outside Ukraine, uh, have been living with you know Putin's oh, you know p- uh, irritation of Ukraine with occasional rises into actual aggression since after the first five or six years of his being in in office, and so we're not horrified exactly we're just saddened <laughs> yes hopeful hopeful to to play our cards right uh, that, that our government can uh, uh, negotiate for uh, the best result under the circumstances huh recently a group called the independent and peaceful australian network sent an open letter to both the Defence Minister and to the Prime Minister Scott Morrison, beseeching them with their with their very close relationships that they have with the Secretary of State from the United States, who's visited recently, with the Prime Minister of the of the UK, um, beseeched them to make a call for peace, and they they itemise some of the things that they want to see happen. Number one, the Minsk agreement, it should be worked out amongst the parties to the Minsk agreement in 2015. They say 
on no account should there be any talk of uh, nuclear weapons being used. They should put that off the table completely. In that letter, they're trying to get the Prime Minister to, rather than he and his def- and Defence Minister Dutton, to try to get them to tone down the rhetoric and to use their close relationships with the United States and, and Britain to try to get them to tone down their rhetoric. Over 400 people have already signed that letter. Would you support a letter like that? I think, generally speaking, uh, the, it, it, it is unhelpful for defence ministers of third-party countries, well, countries that are not... Well, even countries which are, are connected, you know, uh, uh, to, to make statements on uh, foreign relations. They should leave this to their foreign ministers and, and premiers. I suppose I'd like to speak a little bit about the Minsk Agreement. By recognising these little parts of Luhansk, these parts of Luhansk and Donetsk that are occupied by Russian Federation sympathisers, if you could put it that way, um, now actually with Russian troops officially present in them, Mr. Putin has brought the Minsk Accords to, 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 to an end because the, the process of the Minsk Accords was for uh, RF forces to withdraw from Luhansk and Donetsk and for the, the government, the Kiev government, to arrange elections for a, an assembly which might vote for uh, autonomy within, the, within Ukraine. That's now come to an end. But yes... Um, Ukraine looks for uh, the support of, of uh, especially the large players in the North Atlantic and Europe, um, um, Berlin, Paris, uh, London and Washington. Uh, and yes, certainly Ukraine, <laughs> yes, we certainly would welcome uh, Mr. Binken and Mr. Biden prefacing all their statements with, of course, the, the NATO hopes for peace. <laughs> yes, this would, this, would be, this would be, I think, an improvement of their rhetoric. Uh, yeah. Is it possible that what we're witnessing is the decline of the United States? And, and the reason why there is that decline is because the economic powerhouses of the world now have shifted from the West to the East. And with the, the Chinese economy being now at least twice as large as the United States, both it and the countries that surround it um, that are engaged in that economic revolution, that all the focus is moving from, from Europe to Asia. And so really what we're witnessing here is a rather unusual thing for a country such as our own where we have fought and died in wars in Europe and that will never happen again. Australia will never again commit troops to a war in Europe. It's not as important to us as Asia. Is it possible that the United States will never commit to defending the Ukraine, and nor will 
the major economic giants of Europe because they are so dependent upon Russia for their energy. I gather from BBC World Service that Mr Putin has now upped his call from asking that Ukraine should renounce joining NATO ever to uh, Ukraine in addition becoming demilitarised. I leave it to the listener whether to think whether that if Ukraine were to not renounce not only its nuclear weapons but all its armed forces, whether uh, the Russian Federation would respect this and say, oh, well, yes, of course, now, now we have a neutral Ukraine uh, which has no weapons, we will, of course, not, not, not take any more interest in its internal affairs. From Putin's point of view, that's a logical thing to say because it's forever insisted that NATO not expand east and that they they wanted these buffer states which they because of Putin's own incompetence and the incompetence of Boris Yeltsin in particular they allowed the um, NATO to move those 800 miles east and as you pointed out even make uh, states on their border um, members of NATO you know Latvia and Lithuania Russian television Russia Today I just noticed yesterday on its website has um, a category. There are two categories uh, stood out to my attention. One was uh, Russia and the post-Soviet space, and the second was the world. <laughs> uh, it's not an accident that uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia are the amongst the the staunchest supporters of. Ukrainian independence. Uh, uh, they know, and Georgia for that matter, they know that uh, uh, there are people in the, the Putin, uh, Putin himself perhaps, and there are people in the Putin entourage who think that all of the old Soviet country should be in control in either alliance as a client state or in the direct control of, of, of Moscow. The Georgian government is having its own difficulties with the Russian Federation. Uh, uh, it is, I, I, I can't imagine it would say, uh, believe that if, if Putin got Ukraine, he would then give up on his, his, his designs on Georgia. Huh? But, yeah. Well, it was the birthplace of Stalin. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Anyway, uh, yeah. uh, but to turn to your, your yeah. general question. Yeah, yeah that, the, that's... The decline that, of empire. Yes. Um, I wish I could conjure up the details, but I was talking to a, an economist friend. The per capita GDP in China is, is not... Uh, is quite a bit less than per capita GDP in in the United States, it, because of such a big population that it is it is it has this enormous GDP, which is uh, is a significant thing in itself. Hey, but um, well, the economic miracle of China is that it took peasants in the space of a couple of generations. It took them from a per capita very low income into i think it's now about 30,000 US dollars whereas the per capita income of the United States is above 50 and maybe it's not 30 maybe it's 20 in China but to go from poverty to uh, 
you know, to, to that level of income in the space of a generation or two is a remarkable achievement for the Chinese to, to get that far. And so, and who's to say that it won't continue, Ben? Many countries have gone through this cycle of transferal from subsist- of subsistence laborers becoming involved in industrial, uh, secondary industry labor. And there's usually a, a point where this slows down quite quite dramatically. And um, well, of course, China is a capitalist country. It is um, dependent upon them going from industrial to tertiary, and they, they have done that. You know, they they have moved into that area of um, uh, you know where they are really a powerhouse in the computing world. For example, mm-hmm. they manufacture a lot of of not just hardware, they manufacture a lot of software as well. So, and they with their Belt and Road projects to places like Kazakhstan and the road west for China, the heavy industry is going to be in those, in the stand countries. And they're trying to go to the tertiary level of, of uh, you know, capitalist industrial pro- progress. They're no longer just going from subsistence to uh, industrial. They've, they've gone past... Uh, China is, is a great superpower, hey, uh, now... In the period from 1990 until until now, it seemed that the United States was the preeminent great superpower. That uh, uh, Germany, Britain, France, the EU collectively were, were was a was a, a a big economic unit, but uh, didn't have a, a, as a military and industrial centre didn't have the preeminence of the United States. And, um, well, I don't think it is a good thing that uh, the, the Stalinist C government is, is, is challenging that preeminence, but I think it's a good thing that the, the United States is not preeminent uh, on its own. It's a good thing for the... For the well, it's destabilising yeah. for the world a yeah. bit, but it's a good thing for the world. Mm. Well... Given the shift, I think that it's insane for the United States or NATO to die on a hill in the Ukraine, especially given the fact that they need Russia. Russia is is where the Europe, Europeans get their energy from. If they want to compete economically with China, which is what they're trying to do, um, they they need Russia. <laughs> they should not be looking for um, reasons to get into a fight with the Russian well, Federation. So far, the, um, the, 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 Russian, the Ukrainian government, the Kiev government, has not asked for any, apart from minor, you know, troops, advisory kind of troops, um, any foreign support. Um, um, the president has used the phrase... Um, uh, we will provide the boots on the ground. Uh, so um, at the moment, uh, there is uh, no request from the Ukrainian government for uh, any other um, any other government to actually provide troops. Uh, 
the, the US and uh, Great Britain and NATO are supplying arms to the Ukraine. Oh, yes. But we, 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 we ask for support. Uh, mostly we have to buy them. <laughs> uh, but um, yes, we're willing to, to take that risk. But uh, as for, uh, you know, uh, at the, we are hoping that by uh, maintaining the possibility of uh, a credible resistance, even if not a, an, over, uh, an unsuccessful resistance to a major Russian invasion, uh, by the fact that there would be this would be fiercely connect the occupation would be fiercely contested by the, the people, and by the threat of um, economic sanctions by the West, uh, uh, the Russian Federation would hold off from any major incursion. Uh, that's our hope. Uh, mm. Well, it'd wreck the country. Mm. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Martin? I'd like to thank you for, for your effort in trying to get, get me to order my thoughts a little bit on, on this matter. Well, I've gone from knowing <laughs> virtually nothing about the Ukraine, only about Chernobyl is all I knew, to, to, you know, really two weeks of study in the period of preparing for this interview. Uh -huh. I've, I've learnt a lot and uh, there's a lot to um, be sympathetic to the people, both at home in the Ukraine and also here in the Wollongabba. Hey. Um, they, you know, hopefully it will not come to uh, a war. Yes, yes indeed. Sadly, just after that interview took place, Russian troops advanced into Ukraine. A war did eventuate and we don't know its outcome. So I'm speaking now on the 1st of March, a lot of Water has been passed since we recorded the interview, and a lot of water has fallen in Brisbane since we recorded the interview. I'd like to say in, in retrospect that I, I noticed uh, a few mistakes in, in historical reference, but by and large I stand by all that I said there. I think it is useful now, largely as historical matter, but also I, get, I hope for some people still, uh, an explanation of the situation. Could you tell the listeners about how you'd be keen to talk to people about the situation, maybe in a small group or something like that, if it could be organised? Yeah, I'd be very willing to try to. I'm one of the few Ukrainians who's a bit connected with uh, lefty organisations. There are lots of lefty Ukrainians, but uh, not many of them seem to, that I've noticed, seem to connect with uh, leftist organisations. Also, I noticed that the Ukrainian community is organising a rally on the 6th of March, and we, of course, urge people to go along to that rally, listen to the speakers and participate. To stop the war is very important. Indeed, it's a terrible time for Ukraine and for the world. It's very difficult to know how to stop Mr Putin. It is of significance if we rally and show support. Please bring, please feel free to dress in national dress, Russian or any other. Um, uh, bring signs, uh, you know, uh, against, against war. Uh, we support Ukraine. Signs like that are, are, are very helpful. Yeah. Okay, is there anything else you need to put in? Uh, 
I don't think so. Thanks, Ian. For, oh, for thank you, Martin. Let's go out with a song sung by Rosie Byrne, originally by Oasis. It's called Don't Look Back in Anger. Slip inside the eye of your mind Don't you know you might find A better place to play And you say that you've never been With all the things that you've seen slowly fade away So I start a revolution from my bed Cause you said the brains I have went to my head You step outside cause the summertime's in bloom Stand up beside the fireplace And take that look from off your face Cause you ain't never gonna burn my heart out She's walking on by So slides away But don't look back and never I heard you say Take me to the place where you go Where nobody knows If it's night or day And please don't put your life in the hand of a rock and roll band You throw it all away I'm gonna start a revolution from my bed Said the brains I have went to my head and Step outside cause the summertime's in bloom and Stand up beside the fireplace And take that look from off your face Cause you ain't Never gonna burn my heart out So Sally can wait She knows it's too late As she's walking on by So Slides away But don't look back in anger I heard you say so I'll start a revolution from my bed She said the brains I have went to my head Step outside, cause the summertime's in blue Stand up beside the fireplace And take that look from off your face Cause you ain't never gonna burn my heart out She's walking on by So slides away But don't look back in anger I heard you say But don't look back in anger At least not today